Welcome back to Adherent Apologetics, everyone, wherever you may be. Thank you for joining us. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash adherent apologetics. Today, I'm joined by Jacob Burbage. He's joining me from across the pond in England. We'll be talking about the reliability of the Gospels. Uh, welcome, Jacob. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent, man. Thank you for having me on. I've been doing a long day today, but looking forward to this. Yeah, so it's 9 p.m. Um, over in Portsmouth, England. So I appreciate you joining me uh, at the end of your day. I know how I feel, <laughs> like 9 or 10 o'clock. So I appreciate your time and your flexibility. Uh, I encourage everyone, if you don't know who Jacob is, he's going to introduce himself here in a second, but he runs Caruso Apologetics. There's a link down below. Uh, but for a more detailed description, Jacob, if someone doesn't know like who you are and what you do, could you talk a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I would say I'm just a very average normal christian um you know i'm i'm an evangelist uh doing youtube as much as i can um i'm a student i write fiction normally though recently i'm kind of focused more towards non-fiction writing doing my um, apologetics uh i'm just a, a reasonably well-read layman i i don't have any kind of special um degrees or anything like that so i'm just a really normal christian just coming on and trying to do what i can to contribute to the apologetics community on youtube mm. yeah it's one of the really interesting things about the internet now is anyone has a voice and can have a platform which can be a very good thing but it can also be a very dangerous thing if we kind of go off on some bad rabbit holes that are just just bad logic um but i know you're recently like a christian it's not like you've been a christian your whole life so i'd be curious like if you talk a little bit about like your story and becoming a christian and like how you got into apologetics and like all these big things yeah, so um, anyone who knows me personally who's watching this, they would see that, you know, I was not raised Christian at all. I was um, raised in a very liberal atheist home. And uh, after a while, I, I found these preachers on YouTube, you know, the kind of the generic American hellfire ones, with the big signs, you know. <laughs> and um, like everyone else, you would think, oh, that's, that's kind of silly. You know, you just you watch those things and think, oh, it's just wackos with, uh, with the signs. Uh, but after a few months, I did my own investigation into Christianity. I read parts of the Bible for the first time, and yeah, it, it was a strange kind of spiritual experience. I went to Download Fest um, last year, and I went to see all those big bands. I'm a metal head, by the way, as you can see by this this kind of shirt. And so, my my kind of personality was all wrapped up in that kind of culture. And so, when I became a Christian, it was that period when I came back from download and realized I just had nothing. I'm wasting my time away studying something that I didn't really care for anymore. And so I became a Christian 22nd of June last year. And it's a very, very recent thing for me. Um, as I got into Christianity more and more, I realized that I needed better arguments. So when I started doing evangelism very, very quickly. And when you're on the street, you meet all kinds of people. And so um, it just so happened on one of the first times I did it, I met an atheist mathematician with multiple PhDs. And mm. so you can imagine how that kind of conversation went. And so I got absolutely creamed in that debate. And so I recognized, all right, now I need to up my game, I guess you can say, on how I'm able to defend what I believe and why I believe it. And so as a history buff, I got into whatever I could about the reliability of the Bible uh, Christian history, learning anything I could about that. And so after a while, I just got so into it. And after Dylan, 
helped me join the uh, Youth Apologetics Empire, I realized proper specialist apologist. You know, if you were to speak to Carl like, Ander about New Testament reliability, he might not have that uh, grounding. I mean, he said that to us as well. So it's good for us, like me and Timothy and Lucas and others, part of the, uh, the project, we can come along, we can fill those gaps concerning reliability of the New Testament and that kind of topic in apologetics. And that's my, my journey to uh, get to where I am now. Yeah, shout out to the uh, Youth Apologetics Empire and that secret project that eventually one day people will know. Mystery, hype it up there for a second. Um, I'm curious, so you come from like a secular, like atheist household, like what kind of led you to like belief in God and like belief in Christianity? Um, if you could go specifically a little bit more into that. When I first became a Christian, I, I thought I had good arguments, but sadly I was I was swept up into the young earth creationist camp because mm. I, I I first read through Genesis and you know imposing my views on the text, obviously I, I read yeah. it like I would. And sadly I got swept up into that kind of crowd, as I think most young Christians tend to do. Uh, but also like uh, most Christians who would think about these things a little bit more critically. I've come out of that camp quite recently, and I was obviously young earth creationist, and I went to old earth creationist, and thanks to guys like John Morton and Michael Heiser, and of course Inspiring Philosophy, I've come out of that camp altogether. I'm so thankful because I can't stand Kent Hovind, um, and that, that kind of crowd, you know, I just, I, I can't believe I used to believe what they say, because I, I studied geology at college, mm -hmm. and so I kind of threw out everything that I learn about the age of the earth and all these kind of things so i'm really thankful that i've been able to identify with this apologetics community on mm. youtube i'm really thankful for it and you know i i would disagree with my fellow apologists in thinking that a person can come to christianity intellectually i i do mm. disagree with some of them probably disagree with you as well i'm not quite sure where you stand on that but i do believe that a person can't come to christianity just by thinking it you know mm -hmm. uh it, it's a work of god and you've got to it's got to be a work of his he's got to be the one who regenerates you and so i think my journey was definitely i have had religious experiences i i test those according to the scriptures um but apologetics definitely just gives us assurance of what i think we already know mm -hmm. and my yeah, yeah. Might differ between friends but that's, that's fine yeah, I mean, I think we're on the same page in terms of intellectual belief and what makes it Christian. I mean, you just go to the Gospel of John and it talks about uh, you must be born again. It's not just about intellectual things. Hopefully you're not sounding like a Calvinist there, uh, because I'd probably disagree with you there. <laughs> no, Shout out to all my Calvinist brothers and sisters. Love you guys. <laughs> I do appreciate David Portman and um, the stuff that he does, because he definitely gives a good case for Arminianism, I think. Yeah, David's insane um, for where he is and just how much he knows. Um, but you talked a little bit like you've d you've dug very deep into like the reliability of the gospels, obviously from like a layman's perspective. So like you talked about meeting this atheist professor, um, a math professor, and it kind of like made you think, like, oh, I got to figure this stuff out a little bit more. But like what's kind of like what, what have you looked at in terms of like the reliability of the gospels and like why is it so important, you think, to yourself? Yeah, so... Of the many things that I can recommend for people who are trying to get into this kind of topic, don't recommend the pop apologists. I mean, like Jay Warner Wallace, he's fine and all, and 
Like, I think some of his arguments are decent, but what you need to do is you need to go to the, the scholars on it, not people who would call themselves apologists, but they would actually be reputable scholars. So I would include uh, D.A. Carson's introduction to the New Testament. I would also recommend uh, Dan Wallace as well. They do excellent things against Bart Ehrman. These, these kinds of conservative scholars and even more liberal scholars, like this is one of my favorites, uh, Udo Schnell, a very, very liberal scholar. I mean, some of the stuff that he says, I mean, I don't think the majority of scholars would hold to, but still, it's good for us to challenge what we already believe about the text and read them from both sides. And don't, don't just take the conservative scholars and what they say, because, you know, Dan Wallace will argue that John was written in the 60s, and we'll get to the dating later on. There's no evidence for that. I, I don't believe that uh, the slightest. And so, when you read the scholars and just try and get their arguments and their positions, instead of reading guys like Frank Turek, who I, I do appreciate, obviously, I mean, he's one of the guys that got me into more advanced apologetics, but you've got to read the professional scholars and it wouldn't hurt to learn a bit of Greek every once in a while. I mean, I, I feel sorry for those who have to learn it in seminar. Uh, thankfully, I'm not one of those people yet, but we'll, we'll see how it goes and i would just say definitely read read the scholars just go go to what they say learn it from both ends even if you have to go to the extremes like carrier just read 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 them and just see what they have to say about the text and form your own opinions on it yeah something um encouraged christians and non-christians alike like it's so important to read into like not just like the pop level and i'm not saying i'm not using pop in like a derogatory term because i think there's a, t a place for them that are they're so impactful because those are people who can popularize apologetics and make it mainstream and that's such an important thing but i also encourage people if you're listening to like this show or this podcast you probably know a thing or two about apologetics and to not just um get all your information from youtube but really dive into what these scholars are saying because there's so much that just gets thrown out there surface level stuff that when you really dive into like the meat of philosophy or new testament theology or things like that there's a lot of um, explanations that can help um so why do you think just like in a broad sense why would you think that the gospels are like reliable in the first place because a lot of people are like oh they're corrupted or da, 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 da. you know we'll go through some of those objections later like in the first place why believe the gospels are reliable yeah so uh, from my investigation, I would use an eight-pronged approach to establish their general reliability. So first of all, we have to look at the oral tradition that they're based on. So uh, the stories of Jesus were passed down through word of mouth. And there were some sources like the Q source and, you know, other sources that they drew upon. But largely, oral tradition was what they were based on. And we need to assess that oral tradition and see whether or not that has been reliably transmitted and I think based on the, um, the textual evidence, the general understanding of how Jews use oral tradition to transfer their stories and their culture of memory, I think we can rely on it. Uh, next, obviously we'll deal with this later on, but it's the dates for the Gospels. I think there are significant arguments to date the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark and Luke, prior to the destruction of the temple where most um, liberal scholars will put them past 70 AD. I think there are some good arguments to say that they are all within the first century and then some of them are very, very early. Uh, next is authorship. That's what I'm dealing with right now in the, um, in the series that I'm working on right now. Uh, if they were written by the people who they were attributed to, then I think it's pretty good indication that we can trust what they were saying, given that at least two of them were eyewitnesses, um, Matthew and John, 
and with Mark and Luke, many, many arguments that I can use for those, but we'll, we'll deal with those later. Uh, next would be the manuscript tradition that we have. I mean, obviously this is where like, the meat of the matter is right now, I would say. Um, if we can't trust the manuscripts, then we don't really know what the New Testament says, but I think there are plenty of arguments we can use to say that not only are the manuscripts early, but the tradition and the genealogy of these manuscripts are early. So even, even if they are somewhat late, like even in comparison to other texts, so like they're a hundred years from the original, um, the genealogies from separate manuscripts can date back to a common ancestor that is much earlier. And so, you know, uh, Codex Vaticanus, for example, which is a fourth century codex, scholars read that as a second century reading, which is, which is quite interesting given that we can trace them all the way back to the beginning of the second century, which, which can, we can deal with that later on. But that's uh, a piece of incredible evidence that I think supports their liability. Uh, next is multiple attestation of gospel events throughout independent sources. So you have in 1 Corinthians 15, obviously, most apologists will use that and skeptics have their own replies to that and we can deal with that as well. Uh, there's also aspects of the story that can only be used or be known by eyewitnesses. So Lydia McGrew, obviously, she deals with the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels, like un undesigned coincidences and things like that. Uh, also, their coherence with non-Christian sources on the life of Jesus. It's kind of similar to Gary Habermas's uh, minimal facts argument, I would say. Instead of doing it for the resurrection, we can do it for the New Testament, where we can take the minimal facts that the secular and Jewish and pagan sources are talking about Jesus and we compare that to what the New Testament says and they cohere quite well and then also we have the principle of embarrassment which would detail things that they would never write in these kind of right readings if they were written by the people who they are attributed to. Now all of these cases individually they aren't sufficient to establish a, a the, the ultimate case. It is a cumulative case that you have to make for all of these pieces and when you put them together that's when you can have a really good case in favor of the reliability of the new testament i think yeah i think something so important i just want to emphasize here again is the, the idea that like the reliability of the gospel is like really anything else in history it's a cumulative case like uh, i've seen online people be like oh they believe this because oh there's this one embarrassing story or there's these like okay maybe it's accurately passed down over time but like in history it's not just about like the one thing it's about putting all the evidence together and being like what's the best explanation of this event and that's something so important to realize whether you're christian or non-christian like that's how history works um so at least in your mind you in your beliefs you've established that the gospels are reliable but like it's one thing to believe the gospels are reliable it's nothing to believe that like jesus rose from the dead uh why do you think like christianity is true um obviously because if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true. Uh, so why, why yeah. believe Jesus rose from the dead? I would say uh, in terms of doing our research for the project, I'm not necessarily the resurrection expert. I think Timothy Bukowski is. But I would say the insufficiency of the other alternatives uh, just, it doesn't stand up to the scrutiny of other ideas. You have obviously the swoon theory, where he was somehow taken down on the, on the cross. And I think that that was dealt with years ago. It, it amazes me that people still use that argument. Uh, hallucination theory, though it is probable, it is something that just doesn't account for all the pieces of evidence that we have. It doesn't account for 
the idea of multiple disciples seeing Jesus at once. And the idea of expectations as well, they weren't expecting anything like that to happen at all. And so hallucinations don't really count for it. Conspiracy theory is debunked by the fact that they, they would not have done this kind of thing, given the fact that they were persecuted. And obviously you did a martyrdom series based on, was it Sean McDowell's uh, PhD dissertation? Yeah, I, I that, that was well. most of what it was from, yeah. Yeah, so we can make a pretty decent case for the martyrdom of at least a few of the apostles. I mean, we, we can talk about some of the more obscure ones, but Peter, Paul, James, Thomas, I think there's a pretty decent case that we can make for these uh, apostles being martyred. And I would say, and I'll, I'll deal with this later in a series that I'm working on, on the same dissertation, uh, we need to only really confirm or at least prove, not prove, but demonstrate that at least one of the eyewitnesses, at least one of the apostles uh, were martyred to at least give a decent understanding that they genuinely did see what they saw and they weren't just making it up. The fact that we can do it for about five or six is pretty telling to me. And also you have other ideas like the mythic theory, which just doesn't account for all the details, regardless of what the mythicists will argue for. Um, it, it, I think it violates Occam's razor because you have to have all these different ideas, all these different consensuses, and they have to overturn these consensuses. And it, the burden of proof is too heavy for mythicism, I think. You have to overturn the consensus on Josephus and Tacitus and Suetonius and all these other early sources. You have to overturn the consensus that these sources are reliable. You have to overturn the consensus on the genre of the Gospels. You have to overturn the consensus on the rest of the stuff that we've talking about. It just isn't sufficient enough to establish a mythological beginning of Christianity. It just isn't. And so ultimately we are left with the Christian theory, which is the resurrection that would explain the data the best. Now, as of right now, I haven't read the scholarly material. I haven't read like Lacona or Habermas or um, you know, Vermes or any of the scholars on the resurrection as of yet. Right now, I'm focused on the reliability of the New Testament. Um, but either way, I do think there is a positive case that we can make in favor of the reliability of that book. And whenever I evangelize, I always give the offer to the skeptics in my city. I'm saying, tell me, why can't I trust this book give me a reason. I mean, I'm speaking to a very general population. I mean, that guy with the PhD he could be out there somewhere. I could meet him again at some point and explain to me why can't I trust that book? And that would be my argument now. Now, if you're talking about metaphysics or modal logic, uh, I mean, Kyle Vomar definitely knows I, I have no, I have no good argument when it comes to these kinds of things because that's just not my area. But that's why I'm thankful for the project because we are specialists and we can work together to make, as you said, a cumulative case for Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of the things I've really been amazed by, just being involved in like the whole like youth apologetics group, and I, I can't remember who started it, but whoever did, awesome, um, is there's people that know a lot about every topic, like, uh, sorry if this apologetics isn't going away anytime soon, uh, GMD apologetics has awesome accent, therefore he is correct, um, sounds legit to me, uh, <laughs> shout out to the British for their cool accents. Um, I think one of the most common responses to like, especially now that we'll see like 
on the internet to like a resurrection case is like, okay, well maybe you have like a martyrdom of Peter or you have a couple of things supporting the reliability of the gospels. But then you kind of get to this idea that like extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidences. The burden of proof to claim that a resurrection happened has to be like extraordinarily high. Surely there you can find some sort of combination of all these other theories that eventually will make sense, but there's just not enough there for like a resurrection of any sorts. I mean, I, I don't know who came up with that idea, but that is, as has been demonstrated many, many times before, it is a subjective standard of evidence that people will mm -hmm. set for whatever they want. It is, I mean, as of now, I would say that there is extraordinary evidence for the resurrection, but somebody else with a different standard might set the bar higher, Might they might set the bar even lower. And it depends on the individual on how high they are willing to set the bar in terms of reliability. Now, that's not our fault. That that, that would, it's not even their fault. If they have a standard that is too high, even by scholarship levels, then that's on them. So if, if we wanna have a conversation about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, then we need to be put on a level playing field in terms of our standards for evidence. And I think that there are many people who are just not interested. I mean, Pine Creek, for example, love the guy. He seems like a, a nice guy to hang out with, even though I don't like his thought experiments. He does seem a bit rude sometimes. He's already on record admitting that even if he was convinced it was true, he would not return to the faith. He would not become a Christian. Same with Aaron Ra, same with Christopher Hitchens, same with Dawkins. All these people are on record admitting that even if they were convinced, it's not going to change their mind. And so that tells me that the bar that they have set is something that is just not reasonable in terms of a historical investigation. Now, people bring up the idea of miracles. And what, how can you believe in miracles if you believe yeah. that this text says miracles and you believe in the Quran or the investor or something else? Um, but again, and I've mentioned this all the time, it is a cumulative case that you have to make in favor of the resurrection you can't just say well the quran contains miracles which it doesn't by the way um it, you have to look at things case by case and in terms of uh, miracles i mean if you're going to assume naturalism then i wouldn't expect you to believe in the resurrection that's why again i'm so thankful for the project because we have literally every single day i wake up and i look at my messages and i think kyle has come up with a new argument for god <laughs> or a new theory like didn't he invent the principle of was it simple simple unification that's what he's something he's working on yeah it, it boggles my mind that he just straight up invented this and so that gives me real assurance that we can make an arguable case for theism and there are so many different arguments that we can use so we don't need to start arguing about the whole naturalism thing even though and I think it would be useful for the case of Christianity, because uh, if the evidence does point to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and we can make a cumulative case for it, then it wouldn't necessitate the idea that we have we have to hold to naturalism like dogmatically. I, I never really cared about that. I was always keeping an open mind for the fact that it is possible, at the very least, open the, the possibility of naturalism being true, at the very least. If, if you're not convinced about idealism or theism or anything else, then 
keep at least keep an open mind for the historical evidence because at least we can find some kind of consensus on that. Mm. For sure. Uh, I do want to say, London Theist, welcome. I think you're British too. And I think you just became a member. So really appreciate your support, London Theist. Just noticed that because I have you, the, the nice little cute William Lane Craig uh, thing next to your name on the YouTube chat. Um, one thing that you bring up that's super interesting is ideas. So you run into so many atheists who wouldn't become Christians if Christianity is true. I find this actually to be like, it's not like a powerful evidence that God exists or anything, but it, it's a little piece that makes me think that Christianity is actually true because it seems like at least like apologists that I encounter, like most of them as far, I can't think of any that would, wouldn't say this, but like if atheism is true, they'd become atheists. Like I, I'd have, I mean, it'd be a challenge, but if I, like I thought atheism was true, I'd be an atheist. And I'm sure you'd say the same, Jacob, and I'm sure most apologists would. Um, so it's just an interesting piece and a bigger puzzle, but Let's just talk something a little bit different here, but I think it's so interesting. I was listening to N.T. Wright, a fabulous New Testament scholar, um, a few, maybe like a month ago. He was talking about this idea of like inspiration and inerrancy, um, infallibility, things like that, the, the three eyes. And it's something so interesting as he talked about was this is a very American concept that the scriptures were inerrant, um, you know, and there's different inspiration theories mm -hmm. and such. Um so I'm curious, coming from like a British background, obviously uh, you come from a secular, like atheist background, so that may make it a little bit different. But like when you look at these like things like inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, um, obviously three kind of different things. But like, what's kind of your thoughts on them? And like, what's the general take like of the Christians you know? Like, do they think a lot, like do they hold to like these kind of doctrines? Uh, I, th I think it's a sad state that there are more and more liberal expressions of inspiration I'm, I'm pretty sure that's still true in america as well but there are even people that i know who are who waver in the ideas of inspiration and inerrancy not to name names but sadly it is a growing idea that inerrancy is something that we can say yes we believe that the bible is inerrant but apart from these parts that we don't like hmm and that's that's a growing that's a growing uh, movement in the church sadly uh, I, I do affirm the historical view of inspiration you know, second timothy three sixteen. all scripture is is inspired it's breathed out by god it's profitable and i i, I do hold to that uh it, it is the historical view um it includes uh, plenary and verbal inspiration which is plenary is the idea that all scripture is breathed out of God and verbal inspiration, the idea that even down to the very words, they are inspired. Now, in terms of inerrancy, we do affirm, even here in the UK, that the original documents were completely free from error. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be mistakes by the copyists during the transmission of the text. Obviously, that's true for any ancient document, and we shouldn't expect anything less with the New Testament. Um, we would have varying degrees of, of understanding of certain passages, maybe a handful of passages we are not certain on. But for the majority, I said 99%, we know what the original said. And as Bart Ehrman is free to admit, uh, no essential Christian doctrines are affected by textual variance in the manuscript tradition. And in terms of infallibility as well, similar to inerrancy, we need to make sure we have proper interpretation, exegesis, hermeneutics, um, and just we, we need to have a proper understanding of the text. I mean, it's, it's just a very simple, very simple understanding of what the text is 
talking about, especially when it comes to Genesis as well. You know, I spent the summer studying Genesis for so long, and it's it's a fascinating topic. But we do have to keep in mind um, exegesis and uh, hermeneutics, these kind of things, will reveal the true nature of Scripture, which I do believe is infallible. So I do affirm that, although sadly, the more more and more Christians don't seem to be, sadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think these doctrines are super important. One thing I'm curious on, um, inerrancy, uh, I think that's kind of like the hot topic one um, that we'll see. Uh, in a lot of American churches, it's very like word for word, literal. Um, some will even say if like w- if there's one error, if there's one word that's false, the whole Bible falls apart. Most Christians wouldn't go that far, but I think there are probably a few that would kind of agree with that position. It's like when you look at inerrancy, like someone would say like, hey, what about uh, the temple cleansing? Cleansing. I'm not super familiar with that um, issue or different things. Like, how do you approach these issues? Kind of like um, with your view on like inerrancy and inspiration and such. Hmm. Well, we, we have to look at the initial understanding and, and the, the purpose of why certain things were written. So you mentioned the, the temple cleansing as well. Uh, people say that there's a contradiction between the two because in Matthew it's put at the end of Jesus' ministry and John is at the beginning. And it seems to contradict the ideas that they are uh, portraying. And it brings up the issues of contradictions. Now, we need to engage in a theological exegesis and hermeneutic of the text and we'll see like, even with that particular instance i did a video on this in my contradiction series where it's clear that john moved the temple cleansing to the beginning of his story for theological reasons and we also have to keep in mind the ancients didn't really care about chronology anyways mm-hmm. so i mean even uh, papyrus in the early church when he said talk about mark's gospel Mark didn't put the oracles of the Lord in the exact order, in chronological order. And why should he? He wasn't, he didn't care about the chronological order. He cared about the message that Peter was preaching. Now, uh, in terms of other things, uh, I believe that an author has the freedom, uh, not many times in the text, but he can, to use what's called functional redundancy in a text. And it's where a writer will intentionally write a contradiction or he will write something in a different way than he was doing it in order to put out a different or a certain kind of message. We can see that with in Acts where Luke gives us three different accounts of Paul's conversion, but he does tell them differently. In one account, Jesus tells uh, Paul to go to Damascus. In another one, he goes to Damascus and then Ananias gives him his mission. Barton and says, all of these are contradictions and we can't reconcile them. Well, no, because in Hellenistic literature, there, there was a method called functional redundancy where a writer is repeating a certain event. He would need to change things up a little bit in order to keep interest in his, his readers. And there's another reason why Luke may have done that was because um, his Paul's followers abandoned him after they delivered him to the of Damascus. And so it would be important for us to recognize that Luke may have intentionally written contradictions, not to sabotage the text, but to lower the stature of his companions, Paul's companions, and make them look bad and make Paul look good. That doesn't cause an error in the text. That is a a literary method that was common in Hellenistic writing. And so 
in, in terms of contradictions, I would have to ask people about a specific example. If, if I can't answer it immediately, I'd be happy to do a video on it. I mean, give me more videos for me. Give me more ideas for videos, please, because I'd, I'd love to have more. Uh, last okay, okay, yeah, yeah, we're good. Um, I'm curious. I saw London Theus. I just realized London Theus. He's probably from London. I don't know why it took me so long to realize that. Um, but he asked, like, how can we follow you, Jacob? Like, are you on Twitter? We're like, where? Just usually put this at the end. But I think because you know you talk about like ideas for videos and such. Like, if people want to follow this man with the cool British accent, Jacob yeah. Burbage. Uh, where do they follow you? Cool accent, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, so. Just, just follow me on, on YouTube and things like that. That that'll be fine. My cruiser projects is in the description, I believe. Mm -hmm, it um, is. Yeah, on, on just yeah, just find me on Facebook if you want. That that's cool. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, Jacob Burbage on Facebook. Good Facebook friend. Um, so let's talk about a couple of like common like objections that we'll hear. Uh, and we talked a little bit about this idea of like contradictions, but like when I'm sure you've you've heard this like on the street before. If you do a lot of street evangelism, like they oh I can't believe the gospel. They have all sorts of, like contradictions and such in them. So I can't believe them. So like, what about all those contradictions, Jacob? Like, how do you like when you're engaging with someone who brings this up? Like, what is kind of like your response? Um to that objection we have to take them on a case-by-case basis you know we can't just deal with it a broad brush and say well there's no contradictions you know we have to analyze them on a case-by-case -case basis and um if people have supposed bible contradictions i would say just tell me or tell anyone else in in our in our group perhaps and i'd be happy to do my research on it and make a video on it at some point uh, we have to take them each on its own understanding and also cultural context is very important as well uh so i, I watch a lot of videos of um, uh, muslims at speaker's corner in london and we know how crazy they can get there people always bring up the fact that jesus didn't know the hour and neither the holy spirit did uh ip did an incredible video where he, re he reveals that in that culture the father of a son who's getting married he would be the one who gives the go-ahead for the wedding to take place. It's not that the son didn't know that the wedding was taking place, but it's just that the father would be the one who had the authority to give it the go-ahead. And so that would make sense given that Jesus was in that Jewish culture. And I did see a comment on IP's video on that saying, if we take the cultural context into consideration, contradictions just disappear. And that is very, very true, I think. So we need to take them on a case-by-case -case basis and not just paint it with a broad brush, uh, especially when it comes to Genesis, for example. People say, oh, Genesis 2 contradicts Genesis 1. How many scholars have you read on that? I mean, I was watching mm. uh, Sentinel Apologetics debate with Aaron Ra, and it's clear he's never picked up a book on Genesis in his life. He's just been on the internet and just found things on infidels.org or something he just, he, he's never picked up a book in his life about this topic and mm. so when we understand um, as I follow John Morton's interpretation of Genesis that Genesis 2 is actually a sequel that would make sense because there's, there's, there's no contradictory ideas between the two it would make sense if Genesis 2 is actually a sequel to Genesis 1 and not a, a recapitulation as some scholars think so I think it would make sense as long as we take things in its cultural context and a, a proper exegesis of the text, because, you know, we can fall guilty of 
misreading scripture with Western eyes very, very easily. Hmm. Uh, one more kind of objection I'll throw at you, and then we'll go to a little bit of Q&A um, at the end. I saw there's a bunch of questions in the chat, so we'll get to some questions, any super chats as we uh, start to wrap things up here. But one more objection is uh, kind of like the later dating of the Gospels. Like they'll say, hey, Jacob, you know, maybe the Gospels are written like post-70 AD or like, you know, the late 60s, um, something along those lines. We're looking at like 30, 40 years after the death of Christ, assuming they're not like a mythicist. Um, so like how how can we trust these gospels if they're written decades after? Don't you know about the how the telephone game works and so on? So there's a few different objections kind of thrown into one there, but like when we talk about like these later datings of the gospels, like how do you respond? Yeah, I had a mock debate with Logan Jones recently, and I love the fact that whenever we talk about the gospels, everyone goes to Bart Ehrman's telephone game because we know how bad it is. Um, yeah, even if we were to grant a post-70 AD um, dating for the Gospels, I would still say the oral tradition definitely has strength in, in its transmission. I would hold to somewhere between Kenneth Bailey's view of oral tradition and Berger Gerhardson's view. So Kenneth Bailey was a scholar who, he argued that there was an uh, informal controlled tradition of the oral tradition of the Gospels where it wasn't necessarily physically maintained by the apostles. Like, you have to maintain this, and it's very rigid. He says that, he argues that because the gospel message became a part of a community's identity, that community would maintain that tradition. And that would say that even though it wasn't informally controlled, it was controlled because those messages became a part of its identity. And if someone else came in with a different idea, then the entire community will be able to correct that individual. And I think that's a very compelling argument for all tradition reliability. Now, Gerhardson's view says that there's a formal controlled tradition where it was very rigid. And the fact that Jesus used things like parallelism in his, in his parables, uh, he used rhyme, especially when he, when he calls Peter the rock. In Greek, it's, it's mm. Peter Petra, and those two words are the same. So he, he uses rhyme and even poetry sometimes to get his message across. And he deliberately did that so his disciples would remember. And we also take into account the fact that Jewish rabbis would make their disciples repeat things over and over again. And there was one um, rabbi uh, whose name I couldn't remember, but Gerhardson speaks by in his book, Memory and Manuscript. The rabbi would make his dull students who weren't very good at memory, he would repeat things 400 times to make sure that any student who wasn't good at memory was able to eventually get things right. And so there's, there's no reason for us to think that Jesus didn't do that because he was on the same level as some of those people, even if he didn't have a formal education like they did. So even if the gospels are late, I am perfectly okay. If it is a 70 AD post that time, fine, go ahead. That's, that's, that's cool. Uh, I do think that there are good arguments for a pre 70 AD uh, date for the Gospels, uh, at least the synoptics anyways. I, I disagree with the conservative scholars when it comes to dating John. A lot of them put him in the 60s. I mean, there's, there's no evidence for that. There's no evidence for that. So I would say John was written around 90 AD or somewhere around that time. Uh, they were all written in the first century, I would say. Now, in, in terms of dating the synoptics, there's always that one assumption when it comes to dating them, and it's with the temporal destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, People say, if Jesus was who he claimed to be, then we can date them 
before the destruction of the temple. If he wasn't, then he was after. Now, I find the problem with this is that we don't even need to assume naturalism or any kind of non-supernatural ideology to say that Jesus was prophesying. I would actually argue that if naturalism is true, we can even say that um, the gospel of the synoptics can be dated prior to 70 AD. And the reason for that is because there's no reason why Jesus couldn't have been simply predicting the impending doom of Israel based on the political climate at his time. There's I'm pretty no sure Bart Ehrman would agree with you too, just thinking. Um, I'm pretty sure. Oh, really? I think I think he said that he believes Jesus predicted the destruction of um, the temple and such. I, I, I wouldn't take my word for it, but I'm pretty sure. It's, it's a difference between prophecy and prediction. So in prophecy, obviously, he is making a... a deliberate knowledge because he is the son of God incarnate. He knows what's going to happen. And so he is prophesying that with divine aid. But we don't need to even posit that um, supernatural explanation. If we can just say Jesus simply predicted it based on the climate in Israel at that time. You know, you had groups like the Zealots, which are very violent rebel groups leading up to the destruction of the temple anyways. So he could have just made a prediction about that. And second of all, if we read um, Josephus, for example, the number one thing that Josephus records about the destruction of the temple in Jewish war is the fact that the, the Romans burnt down the temple. He dedicates about three chapters describing how horrific and destructive the fire in Jerusalem was. That was the most significant aspect of the temple destruction. The fact that none of the gospel writers mentioned the fire indicates that they weren't there to witness it, especially considering that Jesus was this, he was quite a hellfire preacher, you know? He always talked about the judgment of God and the impending doom of, of uh, the rebellious children of Israel. If the, the temple was uh, burned down and the gospels were written afterwards, that would be the perfect apocalyptic image to say that here comes the destruction of Israel. And so I would say that there's a good amount of internal evidence to say that they were dated they should be dated beforehand and especially because they mention how jesus says not one stone will be left standing of the, the area well we know that there are stones still standing because of the wailing wall i mean jews go there every single day in jerusalem and they they venerate it they pray there that wall was from the original temple and from that original area herod built it and so uh if that's a pseudo prophecy written after the fact uh, I don't see how the gospel writers, regardless of whether you think they were illiterate or highly illiterate rabbis, which even Godless Engineer would say they were literate people who knew what they were talking about, they couldn't make a mistake like that and just say, well, no stones were left standing. Well, there's a stone right there. They're still there today. And we can we can reasonably assume that more stones were left standing in the days afterwards. I mean, that, that wailing wall is left there just today after 2000 years. And so there are a whole bunch of other arguments that I can use for early dating. So, for example, um, this might be a bit of a controversial one for any skeptics <laughs> watching this, but I would say concerning Luke, um, in 1 Timothy 5.18, that actually quotes from Luke 10.7, which not a lot of people know about. And so I was reading through Michael Kruger's book on text of the New Testament, and he gives three arguments why... Uh, the author of First Timothy is speaking about um, Luke's finished gospel. He says that the citation is placed alongside an Old Testament quote, which means that it's clearly considered scripture. The Greek is identical and it only occurs in 
the finished version of Luke's gospel. And the idea that Paul would quote from Luke is consistent with what we know about the relationship between those men. It would just make sense if Paul would quote from Luke's gospel because he was a missionary partner. Now, obviously, the contention here is whether or not First Timothy was actually written by Paul. And obviously, most scholars don't believe that. That's why I'm doing my authorship series to show that I do think the pastorals are authentic. Obviously, skeptics will throw that out the window immediately. Um, but I think there is a good case to be made in favor of First Timothy's authenticity. Now, if it is authentic, that means that Luke must have been written before 64 AD, because mm. that was when Paul would have written that letter if it is authentic, or sometime 63, 64 AD. And so I think because First Timothy is authentic, then Luke can't be dated later than 64 AD, which I think is a very compelling argument for an early dating of that. Um, mm. Also, I mentioned the fire of the temple. Yeah, so also with the... Uh, centurion in matthew and luke so the centurion comes to jesus and asks him to heal his servant in john's gospel uh this story is actually changed god john doesn't talk about a centurion he calls him a royal official and so he's changed that story by 90 a.d and so what happened between the writing of the synoptics and john what well, it would be readily assumed that it was the persecutions of nero if nero persecuted the church then that would make sense that John, living in a post-persecution time, wouldn't be willing to portray a Roman centurion humbly coming before Jesus and saying, please heal my servant. They would never write that in a time post the persecutions when they were turning Christians into candles and doing all these other horrible things, like lion, the Colosseums and things like that. And you can even read in Romans 13, Paul calls the soldiers and um you know, any kind of warriors, like ministers or servants of God. And obviously, most all scholars believe that Paul wrote Romans prior to uh, the persecutions. So that attitude, that positive attitude towards Rome is carried on in the synoptics. If they were written after the persecutions, we wouldn't expect such a positive attitude towards the Romans. So that indicates to me that the synoptics were written prior to the persecutions. And there's also one more piece of evidence where it says, um, uh, where was it? Yes, yeah, so Mark, no, that wasn't that one. So the idea of the gospels being written prior to the destruction of the temple, we have to remember Matthew 17 talks about the temple tax. Now that wouldn't make any sense if the temple had already been destroyed. In fact, the area of the temple after it was destroyed by the Romans, the Romans turned that area into an area where they would have pagan worship and the tax would still be paid, but the money would go towards funding the empire and funding paganism. And so Matthew 17 was written to help Jewish Christians understand that we need have solidarity with Israel. But if it was written after 70 AD, then that would be solidarity with idolatry and paganism. And so that suggests to me that the contents of Matthew 17 are pre-70 and Matthew if he was putting that together he would never put that together post-70 AD it would be completely misleading to his audience it wouldn't make sense for him to say yeah keep on paying the, the temple tax even though the money's going to go to fund paganism mm. that makes no sense to me whatsoever mm. and so I, I don't want to spoil all my arguments um because I'm, I'm going to make a series on that next year that's going to be part of the um 
youth apologetics empire projects uh, the part that i'm working on stay tuned but that's just a, a bit of a taste of the stuff that i have and there's so much more i can go into yeah yeah awesome bro so much um we'll go to a little bit of q a here for the next 10 minutes there's a lot of questions but i'll try to get some of the most uh, really good questions here uh first question um is coming up here in just a second uh it's a super chat from sigifredo serabaya um thank you so much for your super chat sigifredo always appreciate support always appreciate your questions um it says would you agree with the gospels that matthew came before mark um how would you respond to those who say that mark is before matthew or mark um hypnosis from luke so order should be matthew then luke then mark evidence so i guess see Fred is kind of asking you like what do you think about like the order of the gospels based on like the evidence and such i mean i would i would say uh that mark and priority is true i mean i I'm not opposed to the idea that Matthew was written first because that's what the early church says. So if if that's what they wanted to believe, then that's fine. Uh, I think there are also some decent arguments to be made in favor of uh, Matthew in priority. But I, I would say that Mark came first based on the just, just the whole feel of Mark. You can tell that that gospel was something that was early. I mean, it, it was so short. And I, I also argue for this in my... Um, authorship of Matthew video is coming out this Saturday. One of the reasons that Matthew was written most likely was to actually replace Mark because Mark was only about 11,000 words and Matthew was 18,000 words. So it would make sense that Matthew wanted to technically replace Mark with his gospel, but that would incur that Matthew had been written first. So uh, I haven't looked into many arguments in favor of Matthew and priority yet. Um, I would say that it's more likely Mark was written first. Now, there are arguments out there for Matthew and priority. I haven't seen any that are good enough to overturn the consensus right now that Mark was written first. Um, I haven't seen any arguments to say that Luke was written first or even second. Um, I, th I think that it's just a better idea that Mark was the first one and that Luke and Mark drew from both of them. I haven't seen much for Matthew and Priority yet, but if there is something out there, I will see at some point, probably. Hmm. Well, thank you for the great question, C. Fredo. Um, tough question here from Kyle Vomar, which says, what, where are those dope aviators? What on earth is he talking about? I know, I'm really the confused. Aviators. Aviators. <laughs> um. Oh, Kyle. Uh, Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. Can you please do explain? <laughs> uh, we'll just go to a different question from Kyle. It's a little more potent. Um, it oh. says, let's say I'm in a situation um, where I have to talk with a mythicist and give a response in one to three minutes. I'll uh, stick with the like one minute, um, one minute mythicist elevator pitch or I guess against mythicism. Um, so like, what would you say in response basically to a mythicist? Um, I would say it violates Occam's razor in terms of um, the situation that we have right now. If, if a mythicist wants to make a decent case, he has to overturn so many consensuses on, like what I mentioned earlier, Josephus, he has to convince me that all his passages are false. Tacitus, and Suetonius, Pliny, Lucian, he has to completely uh, debunk all of those writings, even if I can grant him Josephus, even if I can grant him Tacitus, he's still got Suetonius. Even if he was to, to debunk that, he's still got Pliny. All these these authors believed that Jesus was a real person and no person until the, even the 17th century believed that Jesus wasn't fake. I mean, Celsus in the second century, if, if he believed that, 
and he would have used that in his argument against Christianity. It also is there's just too much of a burden of proof for the mythicist to make his claim. He has to convince us that the Gospels are not written in the genre of memoir or biopic or something along those lines. He has to convince us that it's mythology, and I've done a video on that debunking that. There's just, it's too heavy for the theory to hold these different ideas. I mean, didn't Godless Engineer one time say that he didn't even believe the apostles existed? I do I mean, not know. I, I mean, that that blew my mind when I saw that. And so if, if you have to say that Jesus is a myth, logically what comes along is that other aspects of that text are a myth, but we just, there, there's too much burden of proof for mythicism to say that, you know what, none of this took place. The apostles didn't exist, you know. That's too heavy. It's too heavy for mythicism. And you can say that the gospels are fiction, fine. It doesn't qualify as myth. So mm -hmm. I think the burden of proof is too heavy for mythicism, I would say. Mm. Uh, another super chat here from Sadie Ferdinand, kind of clarifying. Thank you so much. Uh, another again for super chat. Um, it says, if Mark comes first, what would be implicated if Mary and Jesus aren't involved to begin the Gospels um, for Christianity until after Matthew? He clarified sixteen. He didn't mean nineteen, but sixteen. If Mary and Jesus aren't involved, is, is he talking about the birth narratives, like the nativity and things like that? I th I think so. Um, not completely sure, but that sounds about right. Well, the thing is, is that on the on the assumption that Mark was written first, Matthew wouldn't have been too far afterwards. So on, on the assumption that Mark was written first, I would date it between late 50s and about 60. Matthew would be between 60 and 64 AD. I think it started before the Jewish Christians left Jerusalem, before the, the revolt began. It wouldn't be too far too long after mark was written and so it wouldn't be any you know embellishment of the story or something that that wouldn't be the case um i mean it, it does all i would say uh i'm, I'm not really quite sure what he's getting at there but he says jesus and mary didn't exist or weren't witnessed um he just kind of clarified again there Oh, okay. So, um, well, Mary mythicism, I guess. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how plausible that is. I mean, sorry to any cat watching. But um, <laughs> no, no, I, I would say that that's not the case. I mean, Mary is mentioned in Mark. She is she is there. I mean, she, she and James and the others come to stop Jesus preaching and says, these, these people are my mothers and brothers. So she's in Mark. Just because the, the nativity is not there doesn't mean that that didn't happen. I mean, it, it would have been the similar all tradition strands and Matthew wouldn't have come that soon after Mark anyways. So it doesn't cause any issue for um, gospel reliability. And again, I have to look into arguments for Matthew and priority first, just to make sure. I, I haven't formulated my opinion on that. I still hold to Mark and priority if that's the case. But I'll have to wait, I'll have to get back to you on that if I can. Uh, one last question we'll squeeze in here um, from the London Theist. We've got to end with a Brit because um, we have a Brit on the show. Uh, he says, "When where did Jesus first appear to disciples post-resurrection? Was it Galilee or was it Jerusalem? Yeah, I, IP dealt with that in a video on his. I, I've, I think I've watched every video on that series apart from that one, sadly. 
Uh, it's a case of chronology, I think, when it comes to them appearing, him appearing to them first, or you have to, you have to remember there's a period of 40 days where Jesus was with his disciples. And again, what I mentioned earlier, the ancients didn't care about chronology or those kinds of things, at least not that much compared to what we do. So uh, I would recommend you go to IP's channel and see the video that he dealt with that. I'm pretty sure he dealt with that. Um, even if I were to grant you that that was a contradiction, that's such a minor, minor thing. Like it's, it's similar to like the one with the staff. Like did the disciples pick up the staff or something. It's so so minor and it doesn't affect anything. Hmm. But I, I, I will uh, get back to you when I can. Yeah. Um, well, awesome, Jacob. We're here at the end of the time. It's near 10 p.m. in Portsmouth, England. So I appreciate you staying up, um, talking with you. It's a really important topic, uh, the reliability of the Gospels. Uh, any kind of like closing thoughts before we wrap things up here? Uh, if I can give a message to Godless Engineer if he's watching, um, I, I will come on in China at some point, but uh, just not right now because I'm focused on dissertation and things like that. But also just to anyone else who is... Um, like any, any skeptics watching as well. I mean, I would, I would just like to have conversations with people as, as an evangelist. When I go out onto the streets, I have like two mics that I use and I want to engage with people. That's the reason why I'm here primarily. Um, I'm not here to like cause a fuss or anything. I'm, I'm just, a, as I said earlier, I'm just a well-read layman, I guess. And I'm just here to try and uh, find the truth. And if, if this is the truth, it is the, single most important thing mm. that anyone will ever know and so that's that's just what my mission is as an apologist and yeah that's just what i try to do well, Jacob, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I encourage everyone, go subscribe to Caruso Apologetics. The link is down below. Definitely worth the description. I appreciate everyone tuning in today. Um, after you go subscribe to Jacob, if you're new here, I'd encourage you to subscribe to Here in Apologetics. We talk with all kinds of people about all kinds of questions relating to Christianity, uh, including the reliability of the Gospels, as we talked about today. Uh, encourage you to follow us, as always. Um, and if you enjoy the show, you can support the show on Patreon.com slash it here in apologetics or you can become a member on youtube as the london theist did i believe today thank you so much for your support and see fredo for uh, i can't put it on the screen unfortunately but the really cool super sticker with the little like dude with the pom-poms and respect bro that's awesome i like that super sticker uh but thank you everyone for tuning in the programmer see fredo london theist uh kyle vomar everyone for tuning in and once again uh jacob thank you so much for the show for the time i really appreciate it no worries man Awesome. All right. God bless everyone. Have a good night. We might still be live. Um, the broadcast should end any second now. Music.